The Remedial History Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the K-12 curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. Check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. The Remedial History Project is funded through grants and by listeners like you. Please head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial History Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. In particular, funds from patrons added from here on out will help us launch a crash course YouTube channel on women's history. We will be producing short 10-minute videos that educators can play in their classes telling women's history from era to era for both U.S. and world history. Let's make history together. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In this episode, we are going to be talking about the slow progress in American democracy towards women holding political office. It's been slow. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into it. Woo-woo. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question, why was women's fight for the low-level offices needed? And we're going to be joined on this episode by Dr. Elizabeth Katz. Oh, great name. I know, right? Elizabeth Katz. I know. I'm so excited. She's her own theme song. She does. I think so. Is it Katz, though? Like, is that the theme song? No, no, no. You, oh. like, lean into, like, K-A-T-Z. I don't know how you spell your last name. That's it? Is it? Cool. Yeah, yeah you got to go with, like, the spelling, more of, like, a cheer song and a little bit of hip-hop beat in the background. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited about this episode because I think a lot of people um, look at, like, Kamala Harris and some of those like top office positions. And it leads us and some of the progress we're seeing now, and it leads us to forget that some of the early fights for women's rights, for women's ability to be engaged in public life started at much smaller levels and that those early battles were foundational to argue that like women should be able to vote and hold like state office and federal office and, you know, so on and so forth. All the, all the seats. One of the things I recently became familiar with, and I guess I didn't really think of it this way, but women had to fight to be on school boards. And in a lot of cases, like that was the beginning of it, of, of political positions, because that is a political position. You have to get voted in. You have to get voted in. And but they could they were able to justify that voting in because they're moms and these are their children that are being educated in these public schools. And so I think it's really cool that um, Dr. Katz's research got into these low level office positions, um, low level state courts and whatnot. And she really examines what she pitched to us for this episode is um, this, you know, this early effort way preceding the 19th Amendment to get women into these positions of leadership so that people can start seeing them in positions of leadership. Yeah. So give them a seat. Yeah. So I'm really excited to have Dr. Katz introduce herself to everybody. Take it away, Katz. Hi, my name's Elizabeth Katz. I'm a law professor at Washington University in St. Louis. And one of the areas I focus on is women's legal history. 
Today, I'm going to be telling you about how it took more than 100 years for women to have the legal right to hold public offices. Public offices are positions like mayor, city council member, judge, school superintendent, legislator, governor, and even president. Now, there are many reasons it took a long time for women to get positions like these. Some of those reasons are political or social. Some people haven't been willing to vote for women. My focus is a bit different. My research looks at laws that prevented women from holding offices. In some places, even when voters wanted to select a woman to hold a certain position, they couldn't. Women weren't even eligible to be considered. This kind of legal obstacle had to be challenged first. It was only after women were technically allowed to hold offices that they could then fight the political battles to win specific positions. I became interested in this topic because of some of my other research on the history of family law. It's common nowadays for women to be judges in family courts. Family courts uh, hear issues like divorce and child custody. In my family law research, I was interested in when women started to become judges in these courts, which were first created in 1910. Women weren't judges there very often until many decades later, so the question was why? And in researching that question, I learned that women weren't legally eligible to be judges in many states until ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. The 19th Amendment bans discrimination in voting on account of sex, and many people thought that once women were legally allowed to vote, they should also be able to hold offices. The 19th Amendment obviously was extremely important, but it's just one step in a much longer history. And that's what I'll be speaking about today. So let's back up and start at the beginning, when and why women first began seeking public offices. Then I'll tell you about some of the earliest successes as well as the failures. And then finally, I'll bring that history up to today. Women started pursuing public offices very early in the women's movement alongside their efforts to get the vote. So we're talking 1830s and 1840s, there's already some evidence that women were saying they should be able to hold offices just like men. Now that wasn't a major part of their advocacy at the time. There were so many other political, social, and educational goals that women's movement leaders had, but it's important, I think, that office holding was one of them. They didn't see it as something they had to wait for after uh, achieving all of these other kinds of goals. Some of the most famous of the suffragists, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, specifically argued that women should be able to hold offices, and that was part of women's broader equality. This advocacy received varying uh, responses from the press and the public, with some newspapers being very supportive of the idea, saying things like, well, after all, America wouldn't have even been discovered if it hadn't been for Queen Isabella. And then on the other hand, some people saying it would be ridiculous for women to have offices. For instance, could you imagine a woman in Congress who suddenly needed to give birth? So there was a wide range of reactions to women's advocacy. The first woman to actually be elected to an office in the United States 
was named Olive Rose, and she was elected to be a register of deeds in a small town in Maine in 1853. Now, importantly, women could not vote there, so that means everyone who voted for Olive was a man, and she got two-thirds of uh, the men in that town to vote for her. And there was some discussion in newspapers about whether she was actually eligible or not, but it doesn't seem that there was any real legal challenge to the to her holding the position. So she was able to hold it. And that, again, prompted some interesting conversation, but largely positive uh, press coverage saying, look, if men want to vote for this person, why shouldn't they be able to? Shouldn't we trust the voters to pick a person who is a good candidate? And there was no law that explicitly said women couldn't hold office, so why not? But not all states came out that way. So just a year later in Ohio, there was a, another woman who was pretty prominent as both a suffragist and an abolitionist who people were thinking should be able to hold a, a small local office. But in the Ohio Constitution, it said, no person shall be elected or appointed to any office in this state unless he possessed the qualifications of an elector, and electors were limited to white men. So in other words, the state constitution made it much more clear than had been true in Maine. Um, in Ohio, the constitution pretty clearly said, you have to be able to vote in order to hold any office at all. And since women couldn't vote, women couldn't hold any offices there. So again, um, similar to how we saw different opinions in the press, the law came out in different ways depending on the state. Now moving forward to the years immediately following the Civil War, there's a lot of really wonderful scholarship about the women's movement that really does a deep dive here, talking about how the women's movement leaders thought that the post-war years might be a, a prime opportunity for women to finally win the vote. Of course, that didn't happen, but what I want to kind of add to that scholarship is, again, they weren't only looking for the right to vote, they wanted the right to be voted for as well. And they were quite clear about this at, uh, at different kinds of rallies and in petitioning Congress, just many different contexts. Women said, look, what's, what's the right to vote if we don't have the right to be voted for? We are equal citizens, and we should be trusted in both of these political roles. And at the same time, um, of course, there was a lot of discussion in Congress and across the country about Black men's rights, and there were parallel conversations happening there where people were really teasing out the relationship between voting and office holding and saying that they should really go together, recognizing that as a legal matter, they may be could be separated out. You might give women or black men only one of those rights, uh, technically, but that really it should come together as a package. But in the Reconstruction Amendments, especially the 15th Amendment, black men got the right to vote, but women did not. And so women had to come up with some new strategies going into the 1870s for trying to get their rights. After women were omitted from the 15th Amendment, which was a huge disappointment that also 
splintered the women's movement into competing organizations, there were a number of different strategies on the table. So there was a legal strategy called the new departure, where women basically went out and registered and voted. And hundreds of women actually did vote based on the legal theory that the Reconstruction Amendments had actually given them this right already. But that was ultimately struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. So another strategy that continued for many decades was pursuing rights at the state level, trying to get state legislators and voters to alter their state constitutions to let women vote and let women hold office. And again, here I'm uh, really building on a lot of wonderful scholarship about women's suffrage. There's many, many books and articles about how women succeeded in getting the right to vote in many states and looking at the national advantage as well. But what those uh, books and articles leave out is how persistently women were also trying to get the right to hold office. In my scholarship, I break this story into a few different regional pieces because I find that the trajectory of women obtaining rights varied quite a bit depending on location. Uh, for some reasons, I'll, I'll mention as I talk through the different regions. In my research, I found it helpful to break out our country into regions to really tease out when and why women were able to obtain offices in some places. I'm going to talk through kind of briefly what happened in different places across the country to give an idea of the range and the timing. Um, but of course, this story is much more complicated than we have time to get into today. Women obtained their first political successes in the Western territories and specifically in Wyoming. So in 1869, Wyoming became the first place to fully enfranchise women, meaning give them the full right to vote. And importantly, in that very same law, women were granted the right to hold office. That was explicitly included in the statute. So there was no ambiguity. And this wasn't merely a matter of having the law on paper. It actually mattered in practice. The very next year, in 1870, the governor appointed a woman to be a justice of the peace, which is a kind of low-level judge. Even though it's a, technically a low-level position, though, it was huge news for a woman to hold that post. And so newspapers across the country and even in other countries reported on the fact that this woman was serving as a judge. A lot of that coverage was very positive. Certainly not all of it was. There was definitely skeptics, but it was mostly positive, which probably helped inspire women in other places to also press for their rights. Some of the other Western territories were also on the forefront. So for instance, Utah let women vote in the 1870s as well. But there we see what happens when a law doesn't specifically allow women to hold office. So that law only was about suffrage. And so it was arguably ambiguous whether women should hold office. And there was kind of a mix of inconsistent approaches for a while until finally in 1896, when Utah was admitted as a state, the law explicitly granted women both suffrage and office holding so that there wouldn't be any legal arguments anymore. 
and women did hold office there. For instance, one of the first women to hold a, a position as a state legislator was a woman in Utah who was elected to the Utah State Senate. So again, uh, there weren't huge numbers of women holding offices in these early locations that allowed it, but the women that did were quite prominent and important for uh, understanding this history. Next, uh, turning to the Midwest, the Midwest is really interesting because a number of states there actually let women hold elected offices before they could vote. But to back up, the, the first women to hold offices in the Midwest were mostly appointed positions, things like state librarian and notary public, which may have helped people in the Midwest kind of get used to the idea of women holding office. So that later, um, by the 1880s, 1890s, when women were seeking elected positions, it didn't seem like such a crazy idea. Women had already proven themselves. Now, that didn't necessarily mean the law uh, or the enforcers of the law would agree with that, but it turns out they mostly did. So, for instance, when the Missouri Supreme Court was asked uh, whether a woman was eligible to hold a position to which she was elected, uh, her, the man who lost that election was the, the challenger. Uh, when the Missouri Supreme Court got that case, it said, look, our state constitution doesn't say women can't hold this office, so why should we rule her out? If men want to vote for this particular candidate, why shouldn't they be able to? And so that woman was in fact allowed to hold a position. Now, women couldn't hold all positions in Missouri. There were certain positions like governor where the constitutional text seemed to be more limited. But women made significant advances in the Midwest even decades before they were able to vote there. The story was very different in New England. Uh, I'd say New England was one of the stricter of the regions. There, judges said, look, our constitution doesn't say women can hold office, so therefore they can't. And even for some of the low-level positions that were had become commonplace in the Midwest and West, New England judges held out and said, the only way women can hold these positions, for instance, notary public, is if our constitution is amended to specifically allow women to hold these positions. And in order for the constitution to be amended, that would require the support of the male legislators and male voters. And so for the most part, those efforts were not successful. Women in, in New England states, for the most part, had to wait until they could vote in, uh, before they could hold pretty much any office. Turning uh, to the mid-Atlantic states, there was a more kind of moderate streak there. Uh, I argue in an article I'm publishing that because women sought offices in the mid-Atlantic later than in the other regions, mid-Atlantic legislators and judges were a bit less worried about the implications. They already saw that women held office in other places without disastrous consequences, so they were somewhat more open to uh, letting women hold offices, but success there was very, very slow. And perhaps unsurprisingly, it was even slower in the South, 
where legislators and judges just really did not want to see gender norms challenged. And they feared that letting women hold office would just be so radical and would also make women more eager to vote. Uh, so they they were really opposed to letting women hold offices. So that's just kind of a quick overview of how these efforts played out in different regions. Now we see a really big change starting in the 19-teens because the 19-teens, that's when a number of states right in a row, uh, mostly in the West, suddenly did allow women to vote at the state level. And once women could vote in those states, it, it followed that they could hold office. It followed for two reasons. In some states, the law that was um, enacted to enfranchise women specifically said that women could also hold office. So obviously those are the, the easiest ones. Then in a few states where, it, where the franchise law didn't specifically talk about office holding, lawmakers reasoned that it made sense that office holding should come along with suffrage. Now, to some extent, that might be based on legal reasoning, but it was also politically savvy because imagine if the legislator said to women who could now vote, oh, but we're not going to let you hold office. Probably the women voters would not be too thrilled about that, and the politicians might not last too much longer uh, after taking that stand. So regardless of whether they thought legally it was necessary for voting and office holding to go together, they were incentivized to allow women to hold at least some offices at that time. So that really brings us to the late 19-teens. And what, where we are kind of at that point is a hodgepodge of rules across the country. We have women in some states, especially in the West, voting and holding office equally with men. Then we have some states, especially in the Midwest, where women can hold a lot of offices, not all, but a lot, but can't vote. And then we have uh, up and down the East Coast, a variety of different approaches so some states like New York had just allowed women to vote and hold office. Others let them hold some low-level offices but not vote. It was really just a mixture. And all of this is kind of fueling the flames of the national women's suffrage movement, which you know I haven't been talking about as much since that's not the focus of my work. But as many historians have written about, there were a number of legal and political changes over the 19-teens that built momentum towards finally passing and ratifying the 19th Amendment in 1920. So what does it mean once we have the 19th Amendment, which is an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that forbids uh, discrimination in voting on account of sex? So some might think, okay, now once all women across the country can vote, Surely that means women can hold all offices, but that actually is not how things played out. People in many of the more conservative states said, look, the, the 19th Amendment doesn't say anything about office holding at all. All it says is that women have equal voting rights. So that doesn't change anything about office holding in our state. And so what we see next is a flurry of additional constitutional amendments and litigation to to challenge or to permit women to hold 
offices in the States. And that went on for a surprising amount of time. I mean, in most states, it was resolved by the 1920, end of the 1920s that women could hold all offices. But in other states, it, <laughs> it, it kept going on and on. The worst state turned out to be Oklahoma, where women couldn't hold some of the state's highest offices, like governor, until 1943. So the 19th Amendment certainly made a huge difference, but it didn't permanently solve or uh, completely solve giving women political rights. Women had to keep fighting even after that time just for the legal rights um, before they could even then switch to the political obstacles that got in women's way. There's a few lessons I think we can draw from this history. One is just to notice kind of the, the connections between women's efforts over more than a century and now to get equality in office holding. Today, there are no legal impediments to women holding office, but we see that, you know, women make up less than a third of state legislators. Um, only 18% of states' current governors are women. 20 states have never even had a woman governor. Uh, and I could go on and on with other similar kinds of statistics about judges, and obviously we've never had a woman president. So, you know, why, why is that? There's obviously a lot of complex structural, financial, racial, and other, other factors, but I want to suggest that some of the kind of stereotypes and obstacles that came up earlier in this uh, history are still relevant, that you know, I didn't go into some of the detail today for timing reasons, but I found in some of my research, women who wanted to be officers had to really comfort voters or the people with appointment power that they would still be womanly women. They would still take care of their homes and they would focus on issues like education and charity and healthcare that were seen as appropriate for women, but they wouldn't get into domains considered more masculine. They had to kind of walk a tightrope of what kinds of issues they would um, get involved in and how they would handle it. And I think we've seen that women still have a difficult line that they have to walk in uh, how they present themselves when they're trying to get votes. And that's, that continues to be a challenge. And we can see some of the uh, continuities historically, maybe that helps us understand why we're still confronting those issues now. I also think the history gives us reason for optimism too. You know, throughout this history, it took a single woman in a single state to really press for office and maybe she won or maybe she didn't, but the news traveled far and wide and inspired other women and we also see in this history the role of individual people with power. So a male governor who was willing to be the first person in his state or maybe in his region to appoint a woman as a notary public or appoint a woman as a state librarian. And then that woman could prove herself and establish the legal precedent that women were allowed to hold offices there. That could really have a snowball effect. So I think just individual people contributing to this 
gradual but meaningful change over time can also be an inspiring story even at the same time that we recognize the the slowness and the difficulty of women obtaining uh, and fighting for their equal rights in this country. This podcast is sponsored by our patrons. Patrons get access to behind the scenes, regular RHP gear, bonus episodes, insights into our research, lesson plans before everybody else, and more. Brooke, read off these awesome people. Thank you to Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, and Sarah, Alicia, and Katya. Woohoo! Do you know what is so awesome about this particular group of people? No, what? Very few of them are actually educators. These are badass people who care so much about equitable and inclusive education that they are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So cool. You too can become a patron of the Remedial History Project by heading over to www.patreon.com and becoming a sponsor of the Remedial History Project for just $5 a month. That's it. That's one latte. I mean, it's it's one of something, but it's cheap. And you get all that stuff? All that stuff. You too can give up one latte for thousands of children and women. You could also buy condoms for more than that. <laughs> <laughs> you, could produ- you could produce. You could reduce reproduction <laughs> for less than that. Uh. Brooke, most importantly, instead of lamenting that women's history isn't being taught in high school or that they didn't know these women, these people are putting their money where their mouth is and they are getting it into the curriculum by funding us. It's awesome. And they believe women's stories are important. Yes. Thank you. Duh. Thanks, patrons. We love you. We do love you. Elizabeth, thank you so much for recording this and for sharing this with our audience. I am just like so incredibly grateful to you. Thanks for including me. I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk about my research. It's so important and so meaningful. And so I guess the one of the questions I have for you is just where do you feel like this would fit best in a history curriculum? Well, I think depending on the level, uh, the grade of student, it could come in in different ways. Certainly having some inspiring women in the history curriculum, I, I would hope would work at many levels. But as we get into more the high school level and thinking in a more sophisticated way about how our government works and kind of the interplay between the different branches of government and between state and federal government, I would hope there'd be some more uh, more places where this research could come in. It could help illuminate some of the tensions uh, between the state and federal level. I'm not sure if all of that comes through in the kind of summary I, I gave, but people can also look at the article to learn uh, more if that's of interest. Definitely. And in the article, I also talk about how In some places, legislatures were more at the forefront of advancing women's rights. At other times, it was state-level courts. I also talk about um, some U.S. Supreme Court precedent that went against women. So we can really see a dynamic interplay between the different branches of government and women having to strategize depending on which position they wanted and where they were. So I, I would hope that 
incorporating this kind of material into a high school history class would help show the complexity of our of our system of government and some of how it's evolved over time. Yeah, it almost makes me feel like it could go both in a history class and in, in like a civics class and as like an example of the ways in which these different branches in, in you know play against each other or work with each other or against, you know, like that's I think that's really powerful. Yeah, and I think also as just an example, even outside the government context of leadership and how leadership is so important how even just one person can make a difference that then snowballs and spreads to other places. So I think some of the inspiring aspects of the story could fit in other kinds of teaching moments as well. Hmm. That's amazing. Well, I am so incredibly grateful for you. Thank you so much for sharing this really important research with our listeners. And I cannot wait for everyone to hear this. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.